Welcome to Disability Exchange. I'm Judy Warth. And I'm Mike Honick. Our guest today is none other than the infamous Joy Wesseling. Welcome, uh, Joy. Well, Thank you for joining us. Uh, hello, Judy. Hello, Mike. Uh, my proper name is Joel Westlink. I am Joey. I go by that. I am currently the Administrative Assistant at Access to Independence, a Center for Independent Living organization. Um, I am currently a former graduate of the Lent Training Program. I graduated from the University of Iowa in 2013 with a journalism degree, Bachelor of Arts, and I've been told I'm a pretty good guy, so I'm going to roll with that. We'll second that. Yep. So, Joy, tell us a little bit about um, Centers for Independent Living for those people that might uh, not be familiar with those. Well, Centers for Independent Living, or CIL, CIL as they're known, we have six of them in the state of Iowa that cover 33 counties. They provide primarily help in finding services and resources for people in the disability community, their families, their friends, and um, whoever else asks. We provide five core services, which would include information and referral, advocacy, peer counseling, uh, transition, and um, independent living skills training. So basically, call in. Our staff can support you in anything that you need. That anything that you need to live an independent life, whether it's transitioning from a facility to a community support support based home. Uh, do you need help with independent living skills like cooking, cleaning? Do you need assistance in applying for SSI? Or you just need basic information on where to find a certain resource? That's where Access to Independence comes in. That's where Center for Independent Living comes in. And as I said, again, there are six of them. Uh, for Access, we cover Johnson County itself, Lynn County. We also cover Washington and Henry County, too. There are four other counties. Uh, I believe Jones County is one of them. Those four I know because those are the most... Cedar, too, right? You go up to Cedar, too, don't you? I believe we do. And, Joey, why do you think the work of the SILs are so important? The biggest reason, to help people who want to become independent, people in the disability community. The goal is to help them connect with resources to help them live, live a free and open life. But it's consumer-based control, as in the consumer has the full decision and power. Their decisions, their goals, they have to make on their own and they have to follow through on them. Jerry, I'd be really curious to know how you got connected to Access to Independence, if you'd be comfortable sharing that. I was connected to them. I unconnected from them after I graduated and well, left. Uh, when I moved back up here to Iowa City in 2016, I did get back in touch with them. By that time, they had moved out to where they're currently located, First Avenue. And yeah, I started out as a consumer. They actually helped me figure things out, how to get my life back on track. That's pretty that, important work. That is. That's very that's, important work. That's where it started. Slowly but surely, I managed to get work with their help. They get work with uh, Goodwill of the Heartland. I was able to work on their Walgreens training program, which got me a job to get me something like a job at the University of Iowa Library Annex for a year. Temp job. Then... I worked at Mercy Hospital for a year and a half. They were with me as well. The job opened up when um, the executive director, Sarah Martinez, she posted the job on Indeed. She told me about it, so I interviewed for it. I did have some help for the interview process. Uh, she offered me the job, and I started working August 10th. You know, 
Joy, you mentioned that you um, were a LEND trainee. For people who are listening who don't know what that is, what is LEND? LEND is a leadership training program. There's one in every state. This one is connected with the University of Iowa. I would say in a way it's a cross-communication grad program. Very, very first time I heard of it and encountered it because there were various disciplines involved. There were uh, people there that were family. There were many of them were clinical. I was self uh, discipline self advocate. It was um, in a way it was structured similar to a grad class. I was one of two that was there that was part of the self advocacy program. Being disabled myself, I have experience living in the disability community. I have experience being disabled, even though for 25 years of that life, I had no clue I was disabled. Did you share some of your experiences as um, a person with a disability uh, in LEND? Yeah, the biggest thing I remember from LEND was how it was cut short because of COVID. We still, we still met virtually, but, um, but when I was there, yes, I did. I did speak to the group about my life experiences, my trauma, my struggles, my, to where I got to, to, to that day when I talked, I wish I could talk to them again now because I have moved a lot more since, since that day. What would you tell them, Joey? Some of your classmates may be listening here. Well, I now work at Access to Independence, obviously. That's probably the one thing I'd say as an administrative assistant. I would tell them that I'm right now looking for some next step things to do, like continuing my education and admin support along with grant writing and uh, tell them that I was recently involved with a grant writing group track and another group called barrier removal fund where we deliberated and discussed 26 organizations looking for, for funds for items to become disability accessible, whether it's through moderated doors, doors that are disability accessible to make it the parking lots disability friendly to blankets that are weighted and noise-canceling headphones, too. Well, Joy, one of the things that it strikes me is that you are really passionate about different types of programs that work with lots of people with different kinds of disabilities. I'd be curious, yeah. you know, you, you said a little bit ago that you didn't know until you were 25 that you had a disability. And I'd be curious, how, how did you, where do you think all this passion and, and interest is coming from? I think what drives me is to make sure maybe another person that went through that same struggle doesn't have to go through that struggle again. Because I lived in a time when diagnosing autism or being or diagnosed on the spectrum was very different. Was it liberating to get a diagnosis or was it hard or both? Well, I'm actually writing about this for the Autism Society of Iowa's newsletter. I've been reliving that those past days. So... I remember my father's reaction was the, was the liberating one. He was a parent, 25 years. He'd been looking for what was going on with, with his son. He finally had that answer. He had literally threw his arms up in the air and said, there it is. We have our answer. That's what it is. There we go. I am relieved. My mother, all I'm going to say so I don't embarrass her, because uh, God rest her, um, she's, uh, yeah, she was devastated. She was basically like, well, he, how is he going to connect with people? How is he going to end up in a relationship with somebody? How is he going to do? And it was like, okay, how about we think about now instead of think of the future? 
is what I was trying to think. Me, I was in self-denial. That is that was my initial reaction. It was because you're told something for 25 years and all of a sudden somebody else that you just met basically says, no, 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 no. This is who you are. You're like, no, you want to deny that. I guess the five stages of grief is what I was going through. And it took about, I'd say about three years to finally begin accepting it. So three years and a pretty messy breakup with somebody during that time period that that left me that left me hurt and looking for answers what sort of things helped you navigate to coming to this place now i mean what kind of things helped you to be at this point where you're comfortable saying i i have autism uh, i say the first thing seeing other people that are that are on the autism spectrum second seeing other people actually say they're disabled and they're proud and they're proud Seeing that, that was probably the very first steps that made me accept it. The second was, was that those days after I broke up with, with someone. I had met her while I was in college. This was during the stage when I was in denial. Looking back, I made every wrong mistake with that, with that relationship. But in a way, that relationship pushed me on the path toward where I'm at now. Should thank yeah. her, but... Um, I don't really want to give her too much credit right now. <laughs> I get fair that. enough. Fair enough. <laughs> and so as a person who is autistic, I mean, if I, I think a lot of people don't understand that they think if you have autism, you're rain man. And hmm. I mean, what would you tell people to help them understand autism better? Well, the first thing I would tell them not to watch movies to get your idea <laughs> of what autism is. That's the first thing. I would not exactly look at that. Um, second, yeah, also don't look at anything television related. Um, I feel like in a lot of those cases, it's just one person who saw this viewpoint of, di- of a disabled person and they put this person up as this is what a disability is. However, disability is not that. Disability is anybody, anyone. Anyone can become disabled before you know it. Anyone can. And learned that lesson pretty well when uh, when my father's health started to decline. So you became a, did you become a caregiver then as well? Yes, I did. When a year after, after I had the lowest point in my life, my father, who had been battling diabetes for, for decades, he, he got an infection on his foot and, well, ultimately it led to amputation. And he did have months of rehabilitation ahead of him to where he was finally able to live, live at home. He did live in a, in a facility for a couple months because uh, the hospital stay wrecked him. The, the person I knew him as was pretty much gone. I started becoming an advocate for him when he was an ab- advocate for me before that. And I basically became his caretaker. He did have supported assisted aid, but... Um, lost it due to complications with insurance. So I found myself and my mother basically trying to find whatever help we could and also try to figure out how we could get those services back for them, that home community-based services. And almost got it, but um, well, he passed away before we were able to, able to make that happen. 
Joey, and I'm sorry about your loss, but I, I think, you know, when you make the point about anybody can acquire a disability, um, that is so true. And uh, I, I think it's a testament to you that you, you know, it's, it's another example we often talk about in the disability community in general and in advocacy where roles can reverse and that's okay, you know, that he was your advocate and then you ended up doing some advocacy um, to support him. And uh, a lot of that happened, I'm sure, because of some of the things that you observed as he advocated yeah. for you. So it's, that's kind of a neat exchange that happens in, in, the, in the advocacy arena. Yeah, I became his caretaker, his physical therapist, made sure he kept going, kept walking when he could. But it was difficult. At his age, it was difficult to do, but but I, I would do it again if if it if it happened again. And Joey, you mentioned that you have a degree in journalism here from the University of Iowa, right? Yes. How was college? What was college like for you? Well, I'm going to say how I look at it now. It's it was a blur. It was. <laughs> I. It's almost like a completely different person took the degree. Which, by the way, I wonder if I could have that person pay the pay the student loan debts. <laughs> but um, yeah, at the time, I figured I wanted to do something that was a career. I did have a skill in writing. I did have a skill in investigating, a skill in researching. So I figured, why not do that? Well, I fell out of I fell out of my passion for it. Pretty much died out by the time I was in year two of the program. It was um, completely different than I thought it was. It was just something that was not the right fit for me, but I persevered through and I still got the degree, but unfortunately I never, never took the opportunity to try to figure out what was my next steps or what goals do I need to do to, to ensure I get a career. I never did that. So. so when you came to Lynn, had you pretty much decided, so you came to Lynn after you graduated with your degree in journalism, right? Yes, I graduated in 2013. So we'll say about five years after after that period, a little over five, yes. And you had pretty much decided that journalism wasn't going to be where you wanted to go in the future, right? Or, Well, I know I can use some of my writing skills, some of the things I did learn in the journalism school for something else. I had been support, grant writing. I could use it for those. Because I, I feel like I'm on the right career path, and I was assured of that very recently when I did take part in that barrier removal fund deliberation uh, grant program that I did last week that was connected to the National Center for Independent Living Organization that's in D.C. Feel like I'm making the right path. Studied over 26 grant applications, and I felt pretty good to grading them and rate, rating which ones receive aid and which ones don't. You know, speaking of grants, you mentioned that you're participating in a lot of different things. And one of the projects you mentioned was the track project. Can you share a little bit with us about what that is and what, what role you're playing with that? Uh, yes, tracks. Tracks overall goal is to create a program for individuals who with intellectual or developmental disabilities to be able to transition from childhood to adulthood health care. I will say it's to see in, in a year's time to be on both sides of the grant funding process. I'm with track. I'm on the side of creating and putting the grant together, the barrier, barrier removal fund. I was on the other side, the side where 
the determination of who gets a grant and who the fund and who gets on a wait list and who, well, won't receive the funds either due to sloppy grant writing, which, yeah, several of those applications I saw were that. Yeah. Where some, I will say one grant I did no, notice was only for a thousand dollars, but they, the way they wrote it, they were writing for like they wanted half a million. <laughs> but, for, but for track, I feel like the process is going well. We have a program that's free years. Looking to make a free year, free year program if I'm if I'm understanding correctly. One thing I, that at least I'm looking at right now is how can we connect self advocate groups with self advocacy people, with care with providers, and with the people that are disabled, the people that want someone that understands what they're going on. What is the issue in moving from pediatric to adult care if you have a disability? Why is that a big deal? Well, for some people with disability, change is a very is a very scary factor for them. It's the terrifying factor for starters. They feel like for one thing, they might not be heard with they had such a long relationship with someone that was in the pediatric healthcare. Then all of a sudden you're transitioned over towards something else to a completely different type of healthcare system. Almost it's a pretty much a night and day situation. So for, for someone like that's going through that, it'd be nice. They had something there to help them ease into the transition program from the pediatric level care to adult health care with less hassle, I think would be the word. Personally, have you ever run into healthcare providers who you didn't feel understood you or didn't know how to communicate very well with you? Yes, I've experienced that multitude of times. The biggest struggle for me is, I will tell you, I have not had a, a doctor in, in adult health care, one doctor stick with me for more than a year. I feel like that is the biggest struggle I've had. I'm getting my yearly physical soon, and it's going to be with my fourth doctor in four years. So to some extent, I can understand individuals with IDs and BDs going through that transition period. Because I'm still kind of going through that myself. I would love to see if I could keep a position around for two years, maybe. I'll shoot for two years. We'll do that. Double your time. And for those of you out there who may not know what ID is, or DD, it's intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities. Ah, yes. I we we use those terms all the time. And so it occurs to me, someone might not know that. Joy, yeah. have there been pivotal moments in your life so far that have really put you on this track? Things that have kind of taken you and gone, this is where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. I would say the first thing that did occur that put me on the track was when I was diagnosed on autism. I didn't know I was on the track until, until my father lost his leg and I became his caretaker. I finally realized it the day, the day both my parents passed, I moved to Iowa City. And my life was completely different now. I changed over time. And then I think the next pivotal step was becoming part of the LEN program. That was the next one. Wow. Just got to know me and Mike. That's it. Yes. And to get a, to get a job that wasn't temporary. Also, oh yeah, and one you seem to like. Access to independence. This is it is a job I definitely love, and it's I definitely want to continue doing admin administrative support for a career, and besides it on grant writing as well. I've been enjoying it ever since I started working there. Well, one of the things that's so cool, Joey, that um, that I think about you working with access to independence is that I remember, you know, when we talked several months ago, it was after land. And you made some comment about how you'd like to, you know, get involved with administrative support and also grant writing. And I remember yeah. saying to you things like, 
hmm, you know, maybe those two are two totally separate jobs and two totally separate areas. Well, you know, you, because of your ingenuity and your creativity have figured out a way to connect the two already. So it just goes to show that sometimes those of us that think we know a lot can, can get in the way a little bit. Uh, I can be stubborn that way. Uh, pretty much my entire family falls in that stubbornness. Well, it's paying off for you. Yeah, I think it's going to continue paying off more. I think it's going to. I have a question that's going to take us back a little bit. What was it like growing up with autism and not knowing you had autism? Hmm. Well, for my parents, I know it was a, a struggle because, again, they were looking to figure out what was going on with me. They didn't know why I was behaving the way I was behaving. They didn't know what a meltdown was. They were basically discovering that, that, um, that disability, discovering it, finally put names to everything. But yeah, in my perspective going through it, I didn't notice because I felt I was not disabled because growing up, when you're taught disability in school, the very first image I remember of an image of a person that, that was disabled, wheelchair, someone that is yeah. blind, someone that cannot hear, um, the first encounter I ever had of somebody that was deaf and blind was Helen Keller. That was the first time I ever heard of that, of what that was. So to me, this, I was blind in the dark to begin with because disability wasn't taught much growing up. It wasn't acknowledged. It was like not paid attention to basically. No one ever talked about invisible disabilities or the ones that are mental, cognitive, intellectual those rarely, rarely pop up unless they are stuff like schizophrenia, um, bipolar disorder. I think those are the first ones I ever heard of. When I first heard of autism, yeah, Rain Man was the first thing, first time I heard of it. And when you see that representation of Rain Man, you go like, okay, so that's what autism looks like. Your brain puts it there because it's, it's like a safety valve. You grab onto it or a security blanket. This is what it looks like. You have the image. There you go. Move on to the next topic. Move on to what's the square root of 75. There you go. Off to gym. But you knew you weren't like Rain Man. No, because for one thing, I don't think I could go to Vegas and replicate, um, replicate <laughs> winning, winning cash. I don't think I could do that. So, so, Joey, what you're saying is that because you didn't know that you had autism, you didn't feel any different than anyone else. Yes. Okay. I felt just like one of my peers. Did you get did you get bullied? A lot. Often. Did you ever wonder why? That that I kept wondering. I guess it was just some people told me maybe they were just in, insecure. Maybe they felt they were insecure of who I was. I mean, I didn't know because I was just an average student. I didn't try to be intelligent. I tried to hide my intelligence because anything that made me look extraordinary just ended up with me getting hackled and bullied. It's kind of sad when it's very sad, actually, when, when you're penalized for showing mm -hmm. intelligence. Yeah, I pretty much had my intelligence. Some teachers did see through the facade and they challenged me. Those were the ones that usually had the highest grades. The other teachers who just didn't bother, they were like, well, meh, eh, you just, average just let them pass what kind of help do you need to i mean you're living you're you're 
working, you're doing that all pretty much on your own, but what kind of help do you get or need to be able to have this life that you desire? Hmm. Well, people in my life, I think for starters, that would be the one thing I'd want. I know. I, I wish I could say something more complex or something more. No, that's, that's actually, it's pretty profound. That would be something I would want. Something just, just people in my life. For the longest time, I have pushed people away because of being bullied and teased. The trauma just built and just made, kept my guard up too much. That, I will say in the LEND program, it did start to come down. It did. It's coming down a lot more since I started at Access. I think maybe the pandemic is the very thing that's also played a part. Because those first days when everything shut down, it was like, wow, I used to see people. I took that for granted. Now I'm on my own too much. You know, Joy, it's really interesting because, you know, we've talked a little bit about stereotypes uh, associated with autism and, you know, the rain man theory. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things that oftentimes, and I, I have to say, I've been guilty of this in the past is thinking, well, gosh, all, all autistic people want to be left alone. And obviously that's not true. No, you know, you're, you're, you're telling me, you're telling us and you're telling our, our audience that you want people in your life. So obviously that is a stereotype that needs to be corrected yeah you do see that in media not just with rain man um there was a series of books i read while i was in college um the anyone ever heard of the movie the girl with the dragon tattoo mm -hmm. yeah the care the main character elizabeth slander she the the other main character miguel bloomquist was a journalist he basically deduced that she was autistic that she might have been on the autism spectrum of course, she was nothing like Rain Man. No, she was female, and one stereotype of autism is, oh, it's male-centered. No, 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 no. Women can have, are on the spectrum, too. It's just, I think for the longest time, it's much harder to diagnose. I had a friend who, she told me once how she got through is because she mimicked. She was able to mimic in all the social norms and all the expectations you're supposed to be in a social neotypical world. She was able to adjust to it despite all the trauma she, de she dealt with each and every day. So I could see from, from her perspective, okay, that could be why it's much harder for her. But I don't know, maybe it's because again, that stereotype of it's male dominated. I just feel maybe not so much. Still, I think there's a long way to making someone in media and fiction that's autistic a character not because of their autism a character because of their character joy i think you're the one who told me you meet one autistic person you've met one autistic person yes i did i did tell you that and she listened <laughs> so joy um i don't know how much you remember about this but one of my, I, I have a really favorite story about you and lend um, and I might have a little bit of this story wrong, so you can correct it. But I know that part of uh, what happens with Lind is that you, you all went to the uh, Iowa State Capitol. And so yeah. uh, you went to the Capitol and you were going to meet with a particular legislator at a particular time, but you had a little bit of time before you actually started having these meetings. And that shortly after you got there, um, you, you met some friends or colleagues um, from the yeah. Autism Society, and they said, hey, Joy, why don't you come and, and meet with us and, and talk with legislators? 
And first of all, the, at some point they tried to find you and nobody quite knew where you were. And then when they did, they realized that you were doing the exact thing that uh, you were supposed to be doing in Lynn. And that was uh, educating. And yeah. that, that somehow that led to your getting involved as a member of the Autism Society board. So how accurate is that? And for those parts that aren't accurate, uh, oh, that's, correct me. Oh, that's accurate. That is 100% accurate. Oh, I got one right. So, Joy, what, what do legislators need to know about autism? Why do they care? I'd say the biggest thing is they should listen and at least look at numbers as well, because I feel like autism is one of the highest rise in disabilities, cognitive, mentally, learning, and intellectual, right, and developmental right now. I think it's one of the top ones. But yeah, I'd say the biggest thing is they have to listen. That's the first thing. They need to listen to the representatives, the actual people that are autistic, instead of before they make the decisions that then need to be made. And like, what sort of decisions do they make that you think are harmful for the autistic community or people with disabilities in general? Well, I'm also part of the Disability League that's been looking to try to upgrade Medicaid so it can cover home community-based services, HCBS. And that's one, one thing we've been trying to fight for. And it's been a very tough uphill battle. It has been, but... It's a battle that can be won, can be with time. It's, it's important. It is. Because home-based community services, this is, the, this is something that will help a lot of people that are disabled stay in their community without going to an institution or a facility that would cost more money from taxpayers than, say, the home-based community service. Also, care providers, care. there's a crisis going on with that with finding it so hard to hire people to, to work this job, a job that's very thankless, a job that's hours and hours on of a lot of work and for little pay as well. I do see at least in the federal level, there is the HCBS Access Act that would make Medicaid and Medicare, I believe Medicare as well, at least be able to like, yeah, this is something that's needed. It's not optional. It's got to, it's got to be needed. On the federal mm. level, I do see that, that improvement. I do see that chance. State level, though, it's much harder. And being a part of that league, I, I have heard more stories about, about people struggling with this kind of stuff, struggling to, to find a decent care worker that can, that can help them stay in their home. It's tough. Well, one of the things that I would imagine that's particularly tough about HCBS and autism is that, you know, when we talk about autism spectrum, it really is a spectrum and people have wide ranges of abilities and the level of services that would be needed varies so widely among autistic people. It is. I will tell you myself, when I applied for SSI, when I was still unemployed, it took four times before I was accepted. Four Wow. That was just when I first moved up to Iowa City. Just on that alone. I kind of lost count how many times I applied and was rejected while I lived, lived in my, own, my old hometown. And the reasons they always gave were just vague. It's like, okay, I show you I'm disabled, but yet you're giving me a very, very vague reason that's like a paragraph that's like a circle that's looping back and forth. It's like a mental gymnastic almost. Hmm. Honestly, I should have saved some of those papers. They might, have, might have made some pretty good origami or something. <laughs> clearly, they didn't go to the School of Journalism and learned right clearly. No. You mentioned earlier the Autism Society of Iowa. What is that and what do they do? 
Well, let's see. They are part of the Autism Society of America. They're here for the state of Iowa. Centered in Des Moines, um, Chris Steinmetz. She's the executive director. Um, the organization, I believe, has been around for a couple decades at least, about 30 years. They provide, for one thing, resources and services for anyone that is autistic, that is in the autism spectrum. Um, before the pandemic, we did have, we, they did have like events people could meet. But, well, and we did have the yearly conference meeting where people would talk about being on the spectrum. It was a whole event that was in Des Moines that I spoke at several times. This year, we're hoping to do it, not do it in person. We wanted to do the employee conference event because the one thing with, on, the, on the autism spectrum is how difficult it is for someone to find a job or maintain a job once they have it. Because being on the autism spectrum, you struggle in the most critical area when it comes to getting a job. Who you know and resume and interview, interviewing skills. Those three factors. I will simply say a person on the autism spectrum will be able to do the job. It's just getting the job that's much harder because they have a difficulty forming those networks, forming those relationships. Joy, what do you do for fun? I actually do go to, to a pub. I actually go to Donnelly's pub. I go to Joe's place. Yeah, that's another thing. Most people, when they think I'm autistic, they're like, wait, autistic people don't go out. Yeah, we do. They can. Sure, yes, senses can be overwhelming. But I think because I was not diagnosed until I was 25, I think I built some sort of resistance towards the sounds here and, and sound sights and everything else of, of night. Well, I also read. I write. I still do that, at least. Um, yeah, I play video games. Well, you know, I remember your Lend Research Project was on video games and autism, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I was reminded of that yesterday when I checked out the Electronics Expo that was going on, the big uh, gaming conference that occurs every year for everyone to show their big gaming products, what's going on. Ah. Yeah, amazing. The 10 years ago, I wanted to, I wanted to be a journalist to, to cover that event. But now, yeah. Well, it's interesting, Joey, that you're, you know, how, how you have, your interests have evolved and you have evolved over the past 10 years to think, well, maybe I want to do, you know, cover this event as a journalist. And now you're so, fo and you're so focused on not only your work at, at, at Access, but just also your other advocacy work with the grants and you've taken your, your leadership training to heart. Um, and you've also identified a dream you formed your own goal or goals and, um, and, and you've really followed those since, since I've known you, the things that you've said you want to do. And, and, and that includes a couple of things that you thought you might want to do and, and said, nah, this isn't the right time for me. And that's all a part of goal setting as well. Yeah. I think my next goals will be to continue working in admin support, continue working at access to independence, find more opportunities to be a part of grant writing and, really push my writing skills to, to, uh, to their limit. See what I can do. Joy, is there anything you've done that you feel exceptionally successful about that? I mean, this is Joey brag time. Well, working on access to independence, I'd say would be that would be that time to brag, but it's not fully time yet to brag. I feel like there's still more work to do. There's always so, more work to do. <laughs> I'm challenging myself. 
I'm seeing how far I can really break my limit. How far? Can I break my limit and maybe push past it? And maybe find what is my actual limit? Well, and the fun thing about life is that one, you might be limited in one particular area and then you can start pursuing something else and have another adventure. Yep. That's what I plan to do. Just take life one, one step at a time and continue to break what limits I have. Joy, is there oh, anything else could... you would like to share with people who might be listening? Um, let's see. The one thing I'd say to anyone that's listening, if you are feeling negative about yourself, and you feel like you can't get stuff done, well, the thing is, you're not getting it done because you're the one that's keeping yourself down. I know it's, it's what I'm saying is pretty tough, but I'm teaching you something that, um, that, I, that took me a long time to learn. You want to get anywhere in life. You want to advance anywhere in life. You have to have self-advocacy about yourself, and you have to have a self-positive determination about yourself every day. Start doing the little stuff. Just Take it one little step at a time. If you made a mistake, if you got something wrong, just admit you did to yourself and say, let's try again. Instead of like, oh, I'm never doing this again. Oh, no, challenge yourself every day. Dude, that has nothing to do with autism. You're talking to all of us. (laughs) That's so true. Pretty much. You have to challenge yourself every day. It should never be like, oh, I need to be better than this guy. No, 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 no. For me, it's always challenge yourself. To be better. Yes. Well, Joey, we really want to thank you for being a part of Disability Exchange, being our guest today. Um, And we also want to thank our audience for joining us. Um, I've learned a lot from you today, Joey, and and, uh, this is uh, actually the second in what we hope will be many, many more stories to come uh, from self-advocates and you know you've you've shared a lot of very valuable information and um wish you continued success and in continuing to test those limits and being the best you can be thank you for joining us today on disability exchange disability exchange is produced by the university center for excellence in developmental disabilities which is housed at the center for disabilities and development at the university of iowa Special thanks to Kyle Delvaux for the music contribution.